Hey everyone, welcome to Brass Bonanza, a Whalers podcast. My name is Christopher Price. We are very excited today to be joined by Tim Bothwell. Tim played for the Whalers for an extended stretch through the late 1980s. Played for a few other teams as well, but I want to kind of get right into it initially with your thoughts about New England and your time with the Whalers. You were someone with New England roots. You weren't. You were born in Canada, but you went to Brown after you turned pro. You're with the Rangers affiliate in New Haven for a stretch in the 1970s. At that time, what was the overall assessment that people in the hockey community had when it came to the Whalers? Well, I think the, the I guess the one word I'd say is excited. Like, uh, it's a great fan base. People love the team, are very excited uh, about having the team there. And, you know, myself, uh, like, as you mentioned, uh, being a Brown guy, uh, I love New England, love my time in New England. Um, we had some pretty good, uh, we had a pretty good year. My first year in New Haven, pretty exciting, got to the Calder Cup final. So lots of good memories about uh, New England and still connected with a lot of my, um, my Brown classmates. So we got to the final four one year. So we sort of got connected uh, by history. There have only been two final four teams uh, in Brown's history. We were one of them in 76. So, so some real good uh, New England memories for sure. That's also was the beginning, the 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 you know the the, the early days post merger, obviously, in, in the WHA, the NHL, there was some sort of feeling, I think, in some circles, that the WHA might not quite be up to snuff when it came to facing off against some of the more established NHL teams. By that time, you were with the Rangers. What was your assessment of some of those WHA teams? that came in that joined the NHL. What, what did you think of those? What did you think of that group? Well, they, they were solid teams for the most part, and uh, they were no easy bargain. Uh, the, the one great memory is uh, in my, I guess it was my first year up with the Rangers, which was my second year pro. You know, Gordie Howe was uh, still playing his trade with uh, Hartford. So I played a game or maybe two against them. And then we, we were very, very fortunate uh, in Hartford, uh, the year the year and bit uh, that I was there, you know, Gordy was working in the front office. He came on the ice with us occasionally. Terrific, terrific human being, and uh, um, it was uh, that's really kind of one of the fondest memories for a lot of us, uh, just being able to rub shoulders with uh, a real hockey icon. Yeah, ter- terrific human being, really great guy. One of the things that I loved when it came to putting together the book. Bleeding Green was the number of stories that I heard about Gordie Howe. And when you consider his stature in the game, for him to be just another guy off the ice, for him to be a teammate, for him to be a friend, I, I was really taken aback by that because, and, and I don't know how much of that is necessarily hockey culture, how much of that necessarily was him, but you hear the stories about Gordie and he was just another guy, just another teammate. Yeah, as I mentioned, really genuine, down-to-earth human being, uh, treated everyone with uh, dignity, respect, and you know he fit. He fit actually well with uh, Emil Francis, who was the GM in, in my time in Hartford, and and I I was I played under Emil in St. Louis as well. Terrific, terrific human being, honest with the players, which we always um, really uh, enjoyed and respected um because it wasn't always the case back then you know if he had something even if it was something tough to say he would say it 
Um, and we all respected that. And I think, I think Emil's still struggling along with us. He's, you know, he grew mm -hmm. up in Saskatchewan. I, I had an email from a, a, a friend of mine in St. Louis who worked in the front office there. And he, uh, uh, she sent me a, a picture of Emil. He was deep into his nineties, I think still mm -hmm. scratching away in uh, Saskatchewan somewhere. You spent some time with the Rangers, the blues, but ultimately really you had your best season of your career, at least statistically with St. Louis in 84, 85, then you end up in Hartford. Tell me your initial thoughts about being dealt to the Whalers. Well, it was, uh, you know, you know, honestly, I, I remember the move from the Rangers to St. Louis because it was kind of a shock to be moved the first time. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that's almost burns in my memory more than the, than the move from St. Louis to Hartford and then subsequently back to St. Louis again. Um, so, I mean, I think I was excited. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of pretty good players, uh, in, uh, Hartford. Uh, I had already played three years in St. Louis, so I had sort of laid down some roots there. That's always difficult. And I, I really, really loved my time in, well, in, in both Hartford and St. Louis, but, uh, I still got a lot of good friends in St. Louis. I ended up playing six years there. Um, but so it, it was, I think in the moment, uh, disappointing, but, you know, Emil had moved from St. Louis to Hartford. So there's that, that uh, knowledge that, Hey, I'm going somewhere. I, I know, uh, Emil, I, I know they really want me there. So that was kind of comforting. You also were able to join a team that had a lot of former St. Louis players on it. I, I have to imagine that the connection with Emil Francis and, and, and those players, I, I don't think was, you know, I can't imagine it was coincidental that you were part of that group that moved to Hartford from St. Louis, but I also have to imagine that made the transition that much easier for you. Very much so. Very much so. You know, Mike Leo, uh, Mike Leo, Jorgen Pedersen, Mike Zook, Bobby Crawford, I knew as well from St. Louis. So uh, a good group of pretty familiar faces there. And that for sure uh, made it easier, um, a much easier transition. And all those guys were, were very good friends of mine too. Uh, uh, Jorgen, I, I've seen a couple of times over the last couple of years. And Ludi, I bumped into at, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to get into a couple of the final games in St. Louis two years ago. Uh, so I saw a lot of the guys there. But uh, And Ray Ray Ferraro became a real good friend uh, in, in Hartford. I didn't know him before then. but hey, People talk about Kevin Deneen, Ron Francis, a, a lot of those transformational players on the ice. But I think one guy who is kind of underrated in that aspect was, was Mike Liu. Tell me a little bit about the impact that he had on the Hartford locker room when he moved from St. Louis to Hartford. I, I know that you didn't necessarily, you know, you, you didn't, you know, follow him directly from, from St. Louis to Hartford, but what kind of a guy was he? What kind of a leader was he? It's obviously a natural position goaltender but but at the same time he seemed to bring an element of legitimacy to that roster at that time absolutely and Ludi is a terrific uh terrific guy himself like he's a really good teammate uh he he's a uh he has a deep uh desire to win he's a burning really competitive guy which is always good uh you know he's well spoken and uh and he was a leader a vocal leader in the locker room so he was a, a really good uh, backbone for the team. And the, the best, really the best story to sort of illustrate what a difference maker he was and, and what goalies can do for your team. I've told this story 
a million times in my coaching career. You know, we, number one, we, we were like 13 points out of the playoffs, I think on March 1st, mm-hmm. uh, which is light years, especially back in the days when there was no point in overtime. But we snuck into the playoffs, second last game of the year, played, uh, I think Quebec was number, they were number two or three in the league. Mm-hmm. The Stasnys, I mean, they were loaded. Michelle Goulet. We went into Quebec game one and the ice was literally tilted. I, I'm guessing they outshot us 10, 12, 13 to one in the first 10, 12 minutes of the game. We literally could hardly get out of our end. Mm-hmm. just really struggling. Ludi stood on his head, shut the door and late in the first period we scored and the scale started to level. And we know the rest of the story. We won three straight. Like if they score early mm-hmm. and maybe get up one or two, nothing, we maybe lose three straight. So, you know, that's what Ludi meant to the team and what any good goaltender can mean to a team. The first month or so when he was in Hartford, they blew a lead to Calgary, I believe it was. And I guess he came into the room after the game and threw an absolutely epic fit. And that kind of, everyone was kind of taken aback a little bit by that and said, wow, you know, things are going to be a little bit different around here. And again, he strikes me as a transformative piece in the history of the Whalers. And that's no disrespect to Greg Millen or, you know, any of the goaltenders that came before him, but the presence of Mike Liute, a former you know, MVP, a, a guy who was that established around the league, when he spoke, people listened. Absolutely. And I can remember that, uh, that rant uh, pretty clearly. And, you know, the funny thing about that is that I've told this story many times, especially now being a Calgary resident. But, but uh, you know, the Flames were a Stanley Cup finalist that year. They had an unbelievable team. We came into Calgary here, I think in late January, early February, and they were in the midst of a seven, eight game losing streak, very uncharacteristic for them. And uh, again, they came out, they were, they played really, really well in the first eight, 10 minutes of the game. And we scored first. And I, you literally could feel the air going out of the saddle dome, just like it totally deflated. We beat them nine to one. I think it's still their worst loss ever mm-hmm. uh, on home ice. And uh, the, the the sad irony is we all, we almost had a chance to meet them in the Stanley Cup final, which would have exactly. been, been quite a story. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you, you think about what might have been if it wasn't for the, the Lemieux goal in, you know, in, in game seven against the Canadians, because, and we've talked about this before, you can look ahead at... The, the teams that the Canadians defeated went on to win the cup. You guys took care of business against them over the course of the year. You know, you mentioned Calgary and that was one of those weird years where Gretzky and the Oilers were nowhere. That was the Steve Smith goal. I think it was that year. That was the Steve Smith. And, and, you know, the Oilers were number one in the West. Philly was number one in the East and they lost to the Rangers, I believe mm-hmm. in the first round. And then your ultimate finalist would have been the Rangers. We'd beaten them three times out of three games mm-hmm. the regular season. That doesn't guarantee anything. But we were you're really staring at a final spot right in the face. Um, if it were not for, like, I was one of the goats on the overtime goal. I remember it very, very clearly. And, you know, coming out of the zone I, uh, near the blue line, I, 
I was trying to, I tried to sauce a pass through the middle to Dave Tippett. Mm-hmm. There's literally probably three feet off the ice and Brian Screwland knocked it down with his stick back in our zone. And we recovered well, but when the play went behind the net, uh, Mike McPhee was coming in along the goal line and he completely tied me up and got his mm-hmm. stick between my legs and tripped me actually mm-hmm. as Lemieux was coming out from behind the net. So I, I was, uh, quite regrettably a, a real central figure and really the goat on that goal. Um, so uh, just fessing up time, I guess, <laughs> it, it, full it, disclosure. You, you guys were, were so competitive that the, the, those couple of years there in the mid eighties, and it just seemed like the Canadians were always just a step ahead or just a goal ahead or just, what was it about those Canadians teams maybe that allowed them to get that, that little edge on you guys and what you were able to do? Well, I don't know. They're really, really good team. I mean, you know, Carboneau, Naslin, I mean, they, they could score. They were really fast. They had some great defensive players. You look at, you know, Ganey, Sharp, Carboneau, uh, Brian Scrudland. They had a really solid blue line. Patrick Waugh in the net, say no more as a rookie, uh, pretty, solid solid team when we met them in 85 86 there and um you know is a is a heck of a series i mean seven games and mm. you know i think four or five one goal games two or three overtime games it was a great series um and really uh really one of the most disappointing uh sort of losses for me in my uh, uh hockey career uh and you know the, the the one really interesting thing about that 85 86 team and I was just doing, I was just kind of doing the math um, because I've told this story many times, you know, that of the players on the roster that year, and if we include Brad Shaw, who played a handful of games, terrific guy and a really good, solid defenseman, 10 coaches, 10 future coaches on that roster, two guys, uh, Ludy and, um, and uh, Greg, or Greg Malone was a, an exec for a lot of years uh, with Pittsburgh uh, Ronnie's a, a GM in the NHL. Paul Fenton played a game or two that year, uh, executive in the NHL for years. Ray Ferraro got into TV. We had like 16 or 17 guys off our 23-24 player roster who really hung around at the highest levels of hockey for a long, long, long. That's, I think, extremely unusual. Mm-hmm. And I would put that list against just about any team ever like it's got to be right up there like that's really unusual 10 coaches what made that team so special in terms of being able to produce coaches and it i think it goes beyond hockey iq obviously you need to be smart but you also have to have i've talked to guys who've gone into coaching or executive work in other sports and they said you have to have a willingness to maybe sacrifice you have to be the kind of guy who's going to put in extra hours at the rink. You have to be, you, you have to have a love of the game in your DNA. I'm just fascinated by that team and what allowed that team to produce so many coaches, so many executives, so many guys who've hung around the game of hockey. Well, we, we might go back to Emil Francis maybe. And, and maybe that was one of the things that he uh, sort of looked for and identified in players. Uh, number one, as you mentioned, hockey sense, really really high iq on that team um you know but the i think the biggest factor is that you, you mentioned it as well is the passion and the 
for hockey just running through your veins. Mm-hmm. A lot of those guys just flat out love the game. Um, and again, as you mentioned, we're willing to sacrifice as you need to do oftentimes to either get into coaching or scouting and, and become a high level exec in the league. You know, you got to pay your dues. But I, I think the passion and the hockey IQ are the two big factors there, I think. There was a story in The Athletic a couple of years ago, I think two years ago now, that said that that team was the smartest team in the history of hockey, where you had so many guys who were not only talented, who were, you know, who could either play defense or put the puck in the net, or, you know, in the case of Mike, you know, keep the puck out of the net. But that was the smartest team in the history of hockey, just in terms of just pure IQ and their ability to have a translate to the ice. Yeah, it could, could well be for all of the aforementioned reasons. You know, all those people stuck around in the game and you can't stick around in the game if you don't love it and if you don't understand it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's entirely possible, I guess, <laughs> if we could somehow measure that. What made those teams so special? I, I know, and we've shared some stories before about what made those teams unique and different and they seem to be, at least initially, greater than the sum of their parts. They had the stars. You had the guys that we mentioned before, Mike Liute, Kevin Deneen, Ron Francis, really upper echelon talent, but a group that includes you, a group of really excellent complementary players, to my mind, where you guys knew exactly what you needed to do, when you needed to do it. You guys took coaching well. You guys worked well as a team. What for you? I mean, that, that, that's, that's on my end, but what for you as a player made those teams, made that 85-86 team special? Well, I, I, again, I, I think a couple of things. I, I'm going to start with good people. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's not a player on the roster that year, really, that rubbed anybody the wrong way. We all got along extremely well. We were able to, you know, as all hockey teams do, uh, have a lot of fun together. Um, you know, both in the locker room, uh, whether we're traveling, whatever it is, ribbing each other, playing jokes on each other, but just a really good uh, accumulation of good people, um, solid people. And as we said, very, very intelligent hockey wise. Um, I think, um, you know, and, and Tex really, I think, deserves a lot of credit. Uh, he was an old school coach. But he, he really, he let us play to a large degree. Like he avoided sort of what's way too prevalent in the game today, especially at the minor levels, uh, overcoaching, overcorrecting, uh, stuffing too many things and thoughts in players' brains. Uh, Tex and, uh, and Claude definitely did not do that. Mm-hmm. And I think they maybe sensed that, hey, we got to, pretty smart group of guys here. We just give them a few, few guidelines and let them go. And I, I think uh, Tex was uh, really perfect for us uh, as a group that year. You talk about having some fun on and, and off the ice. Tell me about the origin story behind the Imelda Marcos award. <laughs> yeah, it's a tremendous. I still have a picture of myself uh, and Howard giving, and, and really, you know, Howard uh, should bring him into this discussion. Mm-hmm. What a what a great leader to have at the top of the organization. Again, a fun guy, uh, enjoyed life, enjoyed having fun. And uh, so the, anyway, the, the Imelda Marcos Award, uh, for anybody who's not that familiar out there, Imelda Marcos was, I believe, the wife of the president of the 
Philippine islands mm -hmm. or somewhere over there. And she had, she was renowned for, I think she had like 2000 pairs of shoes. Yep. Uh, something like on that order of every size, shape, color. And it was a big story in the news that year. And, um, you know, Howard Baldwin, the owner of the team, he had, a, he used to wear uh, suede Gucci shoes. He was a sharp dresser. Water. He was, he was, he was a, a sharp, sharp dresser. dresser. Yeah. Yeah, the, the suede Gucci's were going for three, four, five hundred dollars a pop, which is a lot of money back then for a pair of shoes. And we used to rib him about it all the time. And one time uh, uh, he, came, he came in the locker, we we're giving him the gears about it. He said, I'll tell you guys what, if you guys make the playoffs, because this was in early March and we we're still nine, ten points out. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of ground to make up in three, four weeks. He said, if you guys make the playoffs, I'll buy every one of you guys a pair of Gucci shoes. And he did. <laughs> and then Stuart Gavin and I uh, got together at the end of the year. We were rooming together and we wanted to have a little fun at the year end uh, banquet. So we got a piece, a block of wood. We got an old lady's shoe and we nailed the, the lady's uh, shoe on this block of wood. And we, we wanted to present it to Howard at the banquet. And it happened, he had a business engagement, I think. So he didn't show up at the banquet. So uh, I think right near the end of the year, maybe the last one or two games, he was in the locker room after. And, um, and, and there's, a, there's a great picture of, of me giving him the award in the locker room. I can't remember the locker room the assistant trainer guy, I can't remember his name. Uh, uh, he, he, he's beaming face in behind the picture. It's a terrific one. But anyway, uh, Howard was a big part of that, that year, fun year as well. Who was the guy who you could always count on for a laugh on that team? And I know, you know we've mentioned a couple of names, but there, there have to be two or three guys on that roster who you knew when things got a little tense, when things got a little tight, you knew this guy could kind of keep things loose for you. Oh, absolutely. Well, Queenie, for one, Joel Quenville, like what a fantastic coaching career he's had. And he, again, a fantastic human being and, and a really intelligent player for somebody who was a, sorry out there, Joel, for somebody who's a pretty poor skater, even <laughs> back in the day, Joel was a very, very effective, hard to play against uh, defenseman, really, really smart player, but he was a terrific guy, always ready to keep the room light. He and Ulf Samuelson, both, uh, Kevin Deneen, same thing. Like we had a lot of real characters, Ray Ferraro. We had a lot of guys that could provide a lot of humor in the room. Johnny Anderson, again, another guy, really serious. All these guys are really tough, serious competitors, but we had any one of four or five, six guys who, might tell a joke at the right time to keep it light and, and keep us on the, on the street narrow path, just working hard, not getting too down on ourselves. Were you the one who told me the story about Sylvain Cote in the San Diego chicken? Could have been. This is, this Could is a weird, tell, tell me refer, for if, if you were the guy, because I, and I should explain this. I did probably 80 plus interviews for the book. And so some of them kind of get crossed over. But but tell me about Sylvain Cote and the story of the San Diego Chicken. One of the best stories ever. Uh, you know, Sylvain was an 18-year-old rookie, hell of a player, hell of a skater. Um, he only played, he didn't play just a handful of games that year. 
But one of the, one of the games, uh, you know, the bench at Hartford, the seats came right down beside the bench and we're sitting on the bench and the San Diego chicken was there uh, as a promotional uh, piece for the game. And the chicken came down and he's literally three or four seats away from the end of the bench. I can almost touch him with my hand if the glass wasn't there. And Coco, uh, that was Sylvain's nickname, he was sitting on the end of the bench and he got focused on the, the chicken and he was transfixed. He was just sitting there staring at him. The chicken had his routine going and he was engaging the fans and Coco was just staring at him. And this is while the play was going on. And so I think it was Joel Quenville um, was coming for a change to the bench. And, you know, we would normally be yelling, hey, lefty, lefty, when we're coming to the bench. So, so Joel started coming to change, yelling. Uh, I think Coco might have been the right defense, but right D, right D, right D. So Joel's getting closer to the bench. Coco's transfixed by the chicken. I'm standing next for next to Coco and I'm hammering him with my elbow and I Coco, Coco, you're up, you're up, you're up. And Joel's getting closer and closer to the bench and he thinks nobody's coming on. So the second he decides to turn back and go on the ice, Scotty Kleinendorst, I think is sitting on my left and he's watching me trying to get Coco to go. He sees Coco's not going to go. So Scotty jumps over. And then just as Scotty jumps over the boards, uh, Sylvan realizes, oh, geez, I got to go. I, I'm up. He jumps over the boards. And so we've got like literally three right defensemen out on the ice at the same time. We got a penalty. Too many men on the ice. And Tex comes sauntering down the bench and sort of decide who's going to serve the penalty. And he's like, what the hell is going on down here? <laughs> it was just hilarious. Just really, truly hilarious. Uh, I, I'm thinking we killed the penalty. I hope so. Anyway, <laughs> Coco was a guy who, and I've heard stories about him. He was kind of, at least in the early stage of his career, he was kind of able to, it was easy to reel him in with a joke or two. Where There, there, there was one where someone set, someone set up a fake turkey giveaway and they sent him out to a farm. I think it was in Simsbury. And it turns out there's no turkey. And he's cursing yeah. at the guy. He was a guy who, Sylvain so, so seemed, seemed like a guy who was pretty easy to fool, at least early in his career. Well, I think, you know, he's a just, he's young 18-year-old guy and just wanting to fit in and didn't want to look sideways at anybody. But yeah, a, a little naive. And I, re <laughs> I remember that well. One of the stories or multiple stories also I've heard um, about Kevin Deneen. In, in one of the, the phrases that I kept hearing, the phrase that I kept hearing over and over again was Kevin was for the boys. Mm. You know, he, he was, he was one of those guys who would not only be able to score you a goal or two, maybe, you know, drop the gloves from time to time, but he was also a great, not a good teammate, but a great teammate. What made Kevin Deneen such a great teammate and why was he for the boys? Uh, well, again, a uh, good human being, just a kind hearted guy a really fun loving guy too. Like he loved to keep the room light and, you know, the game is about having fun and enjoying it as much as we all uh, have to work our butts off as much as we all got to put our game faces on at different points to get ready for games. It's about fun and enjoyment and, and really being loose and being confident in yourself. And 
Kevin was really good at, uh, you know, propping guys up. If they, you know, he had a little bit of a radar, somebody's feeling down, he'd prop them up and tell a few jokes. And yeah, you know, Timmy, you're all right. Like, geez, like I turned over three times last week, uh, you know, forget it, just go play. Like he was, he was great that way. Really supportive teammate. What's the ultimate legacy of the Whalers? I, I've, I've been asking everybody this for, for the book, and, and I'm fascinated by the responses that I've been getting. When you think of the Whalers, what's the first thing for you that comes to mind? A lot of people say the logo, which is still in my mind, one of the best logos in the history of American professional sports. Is it Brass Bonanza? Is it about the memories that you have with your teammates? The fact that you still connect with them on a semi-regular basis? What is the legacy for you when you talk about your time in Hartford? Well, well, all of, all of those, all of those things, for sure. The logo is really iconic and classic, and you know, Brass Bonanza is is the same. Um, and I, and again, I, maybe one of the legacy pieces is how that my my eighty five or our eighty five eighty six team, how we all paid it forward with all the coaches, uh, the the executives, uh, Ray and TV, uh, the agent, like we paid the game forward. And that may be a real uh, legacy piece for uh, that uh, particular team in particular anyway. Anything still stand out for you, you know, in terms of stories, in terms of things that, that you remember, I know we, we went over a lot of fun stuff here, but stuff that you remember, things that, that you want people to remember about your time with the Whalers, what made it special? What made it unique? Well, great fan base uh again I, I i don't you know people say that all the time but they're wildly enthusiastic um maybe not as big in numbers as some of the nhl franchises but we had a really terrific loyal uh enthusiastic following of uh, fans and you you could feel it in the building the excitement in the building st louis is very much the same uh really terrific people loyal good hockey people and uh, that made for really tremendous atmospheres in both of those buildings. And um, I, I feel very fortunate I got to play for both of those teams for that, for that reason. So it was just a wonderful experience. Tim, let people know what you're up to these days. Well, I've been coaching really since I retired, um, really at every level all over, including a couple of years in, uh, in uh, Atlanta with Steve Weeks. Mm -hmm. who was our backup goalie that year. Steve was, and I were assistants in Atlanta for a couple of years when we had uh, uh, Ilya Kovalchuk and Dan Heatley as rookies. Uh, maybe the best tandem rookie pair ever in that the team. NHL. Like, yeah. really. Um, like, both really, really terrific uh, players in their first year. Uh, but, and more recently, like, and uh, I actually went, when uh, we, uh, Kurt Fraser, the head coach, and I got fired in Atlanta, I came back to Calgary and I actually stumbled into coaching on the women's side. Mm -hmm. And so I've been really literally coaching on the women's side um, since uh, 2004, I guess, really for the last 15 years. Wouldn't trade my experience for anything. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to go to the Torino Olympics with the Canadian uh, women's team. and. I am scheduled now, if it does go off, I'm scheduled to go back uh, to the Olympics next month or in uh, six weeks to Beijing with the, the Danish uh, female team. Wow. Uh, I started working with them uh, two years ago. The fellow who is the Swedish head coach when I was in Torino with the Canadian team, Peter Elander, 
he got the job two years ago with the Danish team. They had just uh, managed to, to qualify for the April. So we were at their April World Championship here in Calgary last August. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had an Olympic qualifier uh, in mid-November in Germany. And Germany were the heavy, heavy favorites. Um, and we, we squeaked, squeaked through. We uh, Austria upset Germany in the first game. 3 nothing, and then we beat Austria 1 nothing, and beat Italy 4 nothing, And so just had to get to overtime against Germany, which we did. We were down 2 nothing late in the second, scored late, and then dominated the third and got to overtime. So we made some history. It's first time ever for the Danish uh, women's team. And the men also qualified first time ever for the Danish men's team. So whenever it goes off, it's going to be a tremendous experience, and I never thought I'd get back to the Olympics. Thank you so much. That's that's a fantastic story, and we'll be we'll be looking for you at the Olympics if it goes off. Fingers crossed, right? Not yes, yes. Yeah. That's, that's, thank you that, very much. That's awesome. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Love going back and hearing some of those old stories about the whalers, especially Cote or Coco and the chicken and all all that stuff. I, I love hearing about this as a kid. As we mentioned this before. I've mentioned this before to you growing up as a Whalers fan, it's been a kick being able to connect with you guys and hear some of these stories and kind of, you know, give them a, a broader audience, you know, all these years later. So thanks again for taking the time to do this and hopefully we can hook it up again in the not too distant future. Any, any time. And I'll put a really late quick plug in for, you know, Chris Berman's a very, very good friend of mine. We played some intramural basketball at Brown and he was a huge Whaler fan. So he, there's another guy that you maybe should try to tie into and I could try to put you together, but uh, he loved coming to the games. And in fact, I went to the all-star game with him in Hartford uh, the year, the one year it was there. So 86. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. He is. I, I know I've had, I've been lucky enough to speak with him before. He's a huge Whalers fan. So we got to make that happen as well. Very, yeah. very soon. Tim, again, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, man. It means the world to me. Take care. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for your interest.